Welcome to Plants and Our Health. I'm Helena. And I'm Tom. Plants and Our Health is a mini-series created by Aaron DeVita, a science communicator at the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh. We decided that it was time to branch out, so we will be hosting this series on our own show, Not Another Science Podcast. Here to tell us about the series and introduce the first episode is Aaron himself. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Tom. So, Aaron, what gave you the idea to start the series? Plants and Our Health is all about digging into our relationship with plants and exploring how they support our physical and mental health. And the botanics where I work is full of fascinating people who all share a great love for plants and nature. And every day that I work there, I discover new amazing things that plants do out in nature and for us. I had this idea to start sharing these stories of how plants support us and as I was pretty keen to try out podcasting, I reached out to you and the team at Not Another Science Podcast. So Aaron has been rooting around for the most interesting guests. Who are you talking to today, Aaron? Our first guest is Simon Milne, Regis Keeper at Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, or RBGE as we sometimes call it. Simon oversees the activities at all four gardens of RBGE including its plant collections and all of its community engagement and overseas projects. The mini-series itself is going to be split into five themes, the first of which will be plants and our mental health. So with Simon, I'll be considering the role of RBGE and botanic gardens in general as providers of well-being through their projects and as green spaces. And listeners, you're in for a treat because this week we have not one, but two episodes of Plants in Our Health to keep your cravings for that leafy botanical content satisfied. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts to find episode two. But now over to Aaron for the very first episode of this journey into plants and our health. Okay, so thanks for coming on the podcast and agreeing to come chat with me. Would you like to introduce yourself, Simon? Yes, hello, I'm Simon Milne. I'm the Regis Keeper, Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, been in post for about seven years now. And it's a, a wonderful job. What a fantastic way to begin. It might seem a bit odd, but as a sort of icebreaker, maybe just to push ourselves into this, maybe you can just tell us or something that perhaps we wouldn't know about you. Oh, yes. I think I'm probably the first Regis Keeper to have been a Royal Marine Commando for 20 years, trained in jungle warfare, Arctic warfare. So that's a good start. Yeah, certainly feeling safe now. And uh, today we're going to talk about the role that green spaces and nature play in supporting people's well-being, particularly because of your position, the role of the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh in the city of Edinburgh. Absolutely. Yeah, the Royal Botanic Garden obviously is a fantastic case study for it. And um, what better person to, to lead us than yourself? Thank you very much. So you said how long had you been in your position as Regis Keeper? I'm coming up for, for seven years now. Before that, I was running the Scottish Wildlife Trust, so and before that, Hillier Gardens. So my uh, last 20 years has been engaged with uh, plants and conservation. Yeah, yeah, you have, you have had quite a career in conservation, but it's always been plants, am I correct? No, Scottish Wildlife Trust covered all, all wildlife, plants up to reintroducing uh, the beaver to Scotland. Ah, okay, interesting. But why the jump then to specifically plants from there? You know, I feel um, as somebody who studied biology, animals were quite popular, especially talking about conservation. Um, uh, well, I mean, I... You don't need to convince me. I'm obviously decided to focus on plants as well. But what was your, um, what was your reasoning? Well, at university, I switched from zoology to botany. I think uh, it 
provided uh, more interest for me and I was better at it. I also come from a, a family of many generations of horticulturists and botanists, so it's in the blood and it's always been a great interest. So it's not really surprising I ended up uh, going in deep into, into plants, as I say. Yeah, and the botanic gardens in particular, they cover quite a big space within Edinburgh. So a really important urban green space. Yeah, Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh is, is made up of, of four wonderful gardens um, and four very different gardens as well, mainly to do with the uh, climatic differences between the, the various locations. So it does enable us to grow a very broad range of, of plants. Yeah, so these are four different gardens in different locations in Scotland? Yeah, the four, four gardens in different parts of Scotland. We have obviously the one in Edinburgh, which is the headquarters as well. Uh, down in the borders, we've got uh, Doik with its wonderful trees. Over in the west, we have Benmore, uh, which is our wettest garden and fantastic for rhododendrons. And we've even recently planted a, a mini forest of 200 monkey puzzles. And then down in Dumfries and Galloway, we've got Logan, uh, which is the closest we have to a sort of a quasi-Mediterranean climate. And we can grow much softer plants down there. So put those together, it uh, enables us to grow a, a wide range of plants. And it's really such a diversity of plants for, for visitors to explore. It, for visitors to explore, uh, people to engage with for our students, the various courses that we do, ranging from botanical art through to HNDEs and then up into the masters in uh, in, in the more scientific areas. So uh, vital for that. And it, it's it's I think it's really looked upon pretty fondly in Edinburgh as somebody who lives here. You know, we have call it the botanics kind of colloquially, and quite a lot of us visit there just as a as a fun nice thing to do. So it's not just for science and education, but it's also for people to enjoy. It's a visitor experience. Yeah, well. absolutely. I mean. <laughs> Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh is quite a mouthful, isn't it? So people do refer to it uh, as botanics, which is, is absolutely fine by me. And it's a place where, you know, how many times do I hear this? Oh, I learned to walk there or I used to take the grandchildren there or, you know, for the people of Edinburgh and, and the, the communities around the uh, regional gardens, uh, it has a, a, a special place in their heart. A lot of people have had their first date there or had their first drink there or whatever it's going to be. Uh, and so it's very much part of the community. And, and that's because it's a beautiful place. And, you know, people can feel relaxed and inspired when they're surrounded by amazing plants and lovely landscapes. So uh, very much part of, of the fabric of, of society in, in Scotland. For sure. I definitely agree. And I think you would also agree that well-being is certainly high on the agenda of the botanics. You know, we recognize that it's important for everyone who visits and it's also a strategic aim in a lot of the activities that go on at the botanics. Yeah, well-being actually has been, in its different forms, has been part of the botanics mission for hundreds of years. We started off as a visit garden, which obviously related to the well-being of of individuals through through medicine, uh, and today has expanded from that in the broadest scientific sense that the well-being of the world, all known life depends on plants. Yet, you know, two in five plants are threatened with extinction. So, unless we look after our plants, then actually, society has got a problem. So that's behind our research and our science, and indeed our, our conservation horticulture. Uh, but it's also about people coming in and enjoying the garden and seeking well-being. Uh, green therapy, I think it's it's coined as now, whether that's actually taking part in one of the community programs on whether a plot for growing things there or engaging with some of our many events, uh, or just walking around as families and individuals uh, around the garden, 
seeking contentment, seeking peace and quiet, and I suppose being at one with nature. Yeah, and I think this role has been particularly coming to light through the recent lockdowns. The gardens were closed for a bit, but when they reopened and people were able to visit again, it was a very popular thing for Edinburgh residents and I'm sure for those who live near the regional gardens as well. Yeah, for sure. As you guys were welcoming all these visitors and the appreciation for nature that kind of came along with spending time outside during lockdown was around. Did you notice how you were going to prioritize well-being in the botanics? Yeah, there's, there's a number of number of strands to that. I mean, we had to close because obviously, like everywhere else, we were not geared up to cope with this dreadful pandemic. But when we were able to reopen safely, then the feedback that certainly from me walking around and people writing to me as well was, you know, hurrah, you, you've reopened the gardens. We love that place. It's so important and, and uh, even more important in these days of COVID. So the public reaction was tremendous. And it's very much a, a service we provide for the public. You know, it's, it's an important service for somewhere people to, to go and relax in a beautiful space rather than just a patch of grass with lollipop trees. It's quality green space. And I think the lockdowns have been changing the, the narrative a bit on the value of green spaces for mental health. You know, maybe some people kind of seen it as a, a bit of a wishy-washy concept before, just something that some people like to do, but it's been a big support system for pretty much all of us. As the narrative is changing, is that changing your outlook and leading the botanics and the botanics role within within Scotland? Yes, it, it has. I think it doesn't change our role so much because we've always been doing that. But I think more importantly, it's changed a lot of people's outlook, as as you say. And I think... More people have come to value nature, plants, green spaces more than they had before. Perhaps they were taken for granted. And it's not really surprising, really. And it's it's broader than just individuals coming and walking around the gardens and appreciating trees and plants. The current crises of the pandemic, biodiversity loss and climate change are all inextricably linked. And actually, if, if we address the loss of biodiversity, the loss of habitats, maintaining green spaces, whether that is, you know, pristine jungle or whether it's urban green spaces, you know, that that is is crucial to the future health and well-being of, of people, uh, be it in towns or uh, in Nepal, in Indonesia or um, southern Australia. So, I mean, there's there's even a feedback here going on. It's not a, a one way support system. You know, if we don't also look after nature, then it's increasing the risk of things such as the pandemic happening, disease spread happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think the loss of biodiversity is cited as one of the reasons the pandemic has happened. The harmful closeness of some species as a result of deforestation, wildlife trafficking, uh, and that's all resulted in our diminished health and economic well-being. So, you know, this is part of a bigger picture. And it's, I think it's very important that we look at this as the big picture. We don't take the individual components separately, you know, be it uh, biodiversity or climate change or pandemics. We need to look at it in, in the round. You know, don't put things in boxes. They're all linked. And does that affect the strategic outlook of the botanics? I guess, I guess you tackle those ideas together. Yes. Yes. As we went into the pandemic, we were sort of honing our plans the next five years. And we have revisited those. They haven't changed hugely, but obviously there are lessons to be learned from the pandemic, and that might be related to the health and well-being of, of our visitors, but also the, the, the links between the pandemic and what's going on elsewhere. So I think it's focused our thoughts even more. I mean, essentially, uh, our role is to, is to benefit society here. 
by understanding, studying, conserving plants. So our mission remains the same, but just brought other things into sharper focus. And of course, being able to relate it far more to people, people will understand it far more. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the great things that have come away from this. And we must take what we can. Um, it's been a difficult time for all. But it's not it's not just Scotland that the botanics focuses on, is it? When it comes to connecting people with um, nature and being an institution that's beneficial for society, you have quite a lot of international partnerships as well. We have a lot of international partnerships, wide international reach. It's a botanic garden, not just for Scotland, but very much for the world. And, you know, going back through history, we've had a lot of links around the world. Today, we work with around 35 countries with our our science and research. Our online programs, education programs are reaching around about uh, 50 different countries. And of course, our plant collection itself is... You know, we are the custodians of that plant collection. That plant collection comes from all around the world, some of it relating to the darker days of colonies. So we're very, we may much see ourselves as custodians of that for the benefit of the world and, and, and working with our partners, you know, experience that we have gained over the years so that we can assist partners around the world in their conservation programs and, of course, embarking on, on education both ways. Yeah, there was a particular education program which interested me where you were working with young people who one of their ways of earning an income was logging, which is obviously destructive for the forests. So this project in Tanzania, it was looking to engage people with nature in order to seek alternative livelihoods that were less destructive for the environment. Yeah, something like that. I mean, essentially that the coastal forests of East Africa are heavily under threat. They're being chopped down for timber and for char and charcoal and of course once you remove those forests there may be a a quick buck to be made but in the longer term they've lost their livelihoods because actually they depend on the forests for so much and so working with our partners including wwf and and partners in country uh, we developed an engagement program reaching out to to schools and young people uh, which was getting them to i suppose understand the wider issues of an importance of forests and what's happening to them, because very often it is the young people who will sort of unlock the change in the future. So uh, I mentioned at the beginning, and it's a great job, and it's a great job because I feel I'm, I'm leading a team that's really making a difference around the world, you know, a force for good uh, and a force for global change as well. And so interlinked with our partners and communities around the world. And that's, that's, that's a really a good feeling to have at a time when, you know, there's a lot of trouble and strife in the world, quite apart from the pandemic with conflict and wars. And, you know, we are, I suppose, transcending a lot of those issues and working together on a, a common cause. You know, um, we do work with a range of countries where diplomatic relations sometimes are a little bit difficult. Of course, of course. Um, oh, so I was going to ask, so have you explored any alternative livelihoods with the um, younger generations that you're engaging with to inspire interest in nature? So the question is, where are we making a difference with, with the younger people? And of course, that's through education programs that we undertake, but it's also working in countries. Yeah, I mentioned Tanzania earlier on. And it's I think it's it's a number of things. One area which is I think is particularly interesting is is to do with horticulture and horticultural training. We're really trying hard to give horticulture a higher profile as a career, not just in this country but 
overseas. I think there is a, a global lack of good horticulturists, uh, and there is indeed a dearth of, of botanists as well. So we're helping to address that too. But engaging people with plants, be it in botany, horticulture, and, and encouraging them, helping them to have that as a career. You know, whether it's a conservation horticulturist or, you know, being a skilled horticulturist working in the botanic garden in, you know, whichever part of the world that you, you happen to be in. So it's upskilling, but it's more than upskilling because it's getting people to appreciate that horticulture is a, is a fabulous career. So I think a thing that kind of connects all of these projects, whether they're based in, within Scotland or whether they're based in international partnerships in other countries, is that we're looking to connect people with nature and hopefully inspire to protect it. Do you think that instilling this nature connection can really turn into real impacts in terms of nature protection? And obviously, as the climate crisis is quite urgent, do you think this can happen fast enough? Oh, there's a question. I think it has to happen. Otherwise, the future generations are going to have an even bigger problem to cope with. Yes, I, I, I do have hope. I think from my limited experience, the, uh, the younger generation is far more aware of the issues and uh, probably uh, places greater value in the understanding and protection of our natural environment uh, more perhaps than, than my generation because you know, that's, it's an evolving, an evolving thing. So I do have hope and I, I think that those who are in a position to help, those of us fortunate enough to live in developed countries, I think we have a, a duty to work with our colleagues elsewhere to make sure that we all come together to address these issues. I think that's very important. And it's about us being in the West, gaining a, a greater understanding of, of the pressures and the issues that people face around the world, particularly in those areas in which we work. So yes, I think there is hope. But my goodness me, we need to maintain the momentum. And we also need to make sure that uh, the decision makers, principally the politicians, but also those in business, gain a firm understanding of, of what does need to be done. And I mentioned business because obviously natural capital, you know, the, the natural environment underpins virtually all our economic activity around the world. And if you diminish that capital, then of course, you also diminish the economies of, of that region or that particular country. So it's, uh, I think we've made huge inroads in the last few years, particularly about understanding the role of natural capital, natural capital accounting. Yeah, there's hope. There is hope. But as I say, we've got to keep that momentum going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a message of hope is definitely what we would like to hear. And I think you're definitely right that the younger generation, you know, they're demonstrating with the youth climate strike movement, particularly that there's an interest and there's a drive to make a difference. And yeah, we can only hope that the momentum stays and then it turns into to real change. Yeah, I mean, you're, I know you're interviewing me, but let me interview interview you for a second, because you are a few decades younger than me. Oh gosh, am I ready? <laughs> Do you? Uh, I know that puts it into proportion, doesn't it? I think you're younger than my children. But are you are you aware of it in your amongst your your friends and your cohorts from from home? Do you see a big uh, revival and interest in in the natural environment? Uh, that's a difficult one because I I mean I studied ecology and quite a lot of my friends were quite environmentally conscious already, and I think. It almost felt like we had to be conscious that we were in a bubble of people who were quite aware and wanted to do something about this. And when the, the strike started happening, I think it was mostly uh, school students who were actually younger than me. So I'm not sure how much they influenced each other, but it was definitely them that led that movement. 
and it, it influenced some of my peers in university for sure that's a good that's a good sign good perhaps on that uh, note of hope is a good place to wrap up the interview thanks very much for coming on and chatting chatting to me about such a, a breadth of topics today it's a great pleasure i really enjoy talking about Royal botanic garden edinburgh and our and our work and our people because then although we've talked about the plants and the gardens etc etc it's actually the the people that bring it alive and, and make it work and we have such an amazing collection of people that work with us and that's not only the staff it's our, our volunteers and of course our collaborators around the world and that is the critical ingredient if you like in, in, into the recipe of our success is is the people and their, their passion their hard work and their understanding and I think uh, if you go around any botanic garden in the world, certainly ones I visited, you that passion and that wonderful attitude uh, is replicated. And so, you know, here we are. Yes, we're in the top four botanic gardens in the world based on the breadth and depth of of what we do. But you put all those botanic gardens together and you've really got a, a real force for change there, not just based on the collections, but also that willingness to, to make a difference, to have a, a better environment for future generations and for the future economy and overall the future well-being of, of people and society. So do you know what? I don't think there's ever been a more important time for botanic gardens in the world. Or for this episode to be cutting, I guess, then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a pleasure to share these these thoughts with you. Okay, thanks very much again. And if anyone would like to get in contact with you, just about anything that you've said on the podcast today, do you have an email or anything, a way that people can contact you? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, the best thing to do is to go onto the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh website and uh, find a, a form there to submit. And if you say for Simon Milne or the Regis Keeper, then that will get through to me. That's probably the, the best way. Thanks to listening to our very first episode of Plants in Our Health. You can reach Simon on his Twitter at simonmilne underscore rbge. And you can find me at Aaron Devere. That's double A-R-O-N-D-E-V-E-R-E-S. And this week, there's no wait for the next episode. It's already out. This mini-series is going to split into five themes, with two episodes for each theme. So episode two will also look at how plants support our mental health but this time from a different perspective beyond the botanics. This episode of Plants in Our Health was produced by Aaron Devere and brought to you by Northern Ireland Science Podcast from the Edinburgh University Science Magazine, where we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work and find out about the science being done right here in Edinburgh. If you have any feedback for us or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also shoot us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com. And you can see the show notes and leaf through the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. Not Another Science Podcast is hosted by me, Helena Konu, and my partner in crime, Tom Edwick. The podcast manager is Alex Bailey. The logo was designed by USI Chief Editor, Apple Chu. And the tree-rific episode art for the series was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. Thanks for listening, and until next time... Keep it leafy!